Hello, and welcome to the Engineer's Backyard Barbecue, sponsored by the Sarah Obando Web Studio. The Engineer's Backyard Barbecue podcast is where we discuss science, tech, politics, and whatever else comes to mind. Join us as we discuss our topics for this episode. I'm joined today by my friend Dallin. Dallin, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you, Ben? I'm doing very well. Do you appreciate that I did not introduce you as Dr. Dallin Barton <laughs> saving lives? <laughs> very much. You know, I, I was re-listening to that episode uh, <laughs> shortly after it was released, and I forgot that that was, we had recorded that as a test and decided to release it. So with no context to anyone outside <laughs> our group, which is just that Dallin does not appreciate being called doctor. I, I call him Dr. Dallin Barton saving lives in the introduction. And I just thought that was very funny. Well, to be, uh, to be clear, I do have a PhD in material science, but to be called doctor is just sort of odd because I'm not saving lives or doing a lot of saving anything but yeah that's where the doctor does come from but no it does it does have See, a, it does have an odd turn tone having dr barton even mo most of the people in my field sort of shy away from it professors use it in classrooms to sort of maintain authority amongst the students but in the industry there is no doctor or anybody unless it's like a formal dinner that everyone was forced to go to and nobody actually wants to be there. That's the only time I've heard. That's the only time I've heard doctors in my field. So it is sort of, it, it, it's an interesting title amongst the more engineering type fields compared to a medical thing where a doctor is more standard. Yeah, that's super interesting because I feel like I don't really interact with any doctorate computer engineers like it's just super uncommon so I'd, i it's hard to imagine what the like pleasantry is like how that would work yeah is there any in software engineering if you're a doctor in software engineering like you go and teach right there's your your regular yes. company wouldn't hire a doctor unless they had a very specific task to perform i'd imagine I think that's right. I've never run into one in the wild, like in my workplace. Uh, <laughs> my dad has a master's, but he, that's the highest I know of. I, and candidly, most engineers don't even have a degree in computer science, I feel like. I mean, I don't. Um, I don't know. So I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know what that would be like. But if I ever run into one, I will let you know. Today's episode, we have a very exciting one. We want to talk about Oracle v. Google and what that means for the future of APIs and network effects. But first, I want to remind our listeners that today's episode is sponsored by the Sarah Obando Web Studio. If you need clean, professional website design in an expedited time frame, call the Sarah Obando Web Studio and they can help. Dallin, we have taken a very long break from our last episode. What were you doing doing during the time of the break? Not a whole lot. Just, uh, boy, when was the last time we did record? It was... I think it was like a month and a half ago. We, we really slacked off. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, mostly just looking for your jobs currently. Interviewing, I've just graduated. So right now I'm with my I'm at a temporary postdoc position with the professors I got my PhD under, but I'm still looking for a more permanent full-time position. So that's mostly what I've been doing is continuing research with them and then just sort of looking for a job. What is it like looking for a job as a doctor or a doctor or a doctorate holder? I don't know what terminology to use there. <laughs> um, it's interesting. You know, it's whatever 
And in normal circumstances, and I probably didn't play this out perfectly well, it, you would have some sort of job better lined up after you graduate. So in my field, in material science or materials engineering, you sort of have three different flavors of jobs you can try and go to. You have the academia position where you're going to go to university, teach a little, do your own research, and you're mostly hunting grants from um, the federal government to perform some, some research. And that could entail uh, NSF grants, or uh, Department of Energy grants, Department of Defense grants, or uh, some sort of mixture of the two, some sort of a mixture of the bunch. Um, you write proposals, you get funded, and then that funding um, helps pay for your salary and then also uh, buy equipment that you may need. The second route a lot of people take is the national lab route, where you, you have lots of different national labs, most of them born in the Cold War, um, to help with nuclear research that are still around for um, either weapons development or um, nuclear energy development. These include names like Sandia National Labs, um, Lawrence Livermore, Pacific Northwest, Savannah River. And if you Google all those, those are companies with, with several thousands of employees. Those are large companies with a high number of PhDs where they're doing fundamental research. The difference between them and like a research professor is that uh, they're fighting less for, well, they're still fighting for grants, but it's less in a public field and more of a, more of a controlled environment where they're like, where the government will decide that they have this amount of money to spend on a national lab. And then you're trying to fight for specific projects. And so the proposal, it's a lot more, it's a, it's a lot more stable, but there's a little less reward. And then the third one is industry, where you try and sort of make your own way. Most, most of these go to big companies that contract for the government. Boeing's the first one that jumps in my head. We've also had people from our group go to um, Apple and Seagate. Seagate's the people that make hard drives. Um, people have gone to work for IBM. So sort of all over. As far as me, I think... I'd like to do the more fundamental research side. So I've been applying for national labs. And what that will entail is some sort of postdoctoral position where I'm at a national lab for one to two years. And that's sort of a trial position. And then after that, then I'll make some sort of senior staff scientist position if I'm fortunate and do good work. And then that's the quote unquote tenure of the national labs. So that's sort of the track I'm going down. But I've also, you know, uh, with with COVID nineteen, beggars really can't be choosers. So it's I'm sort of applying everywhere. It's kind of surprising to me that COVID nineteen would have such an impact on that kind of job search because you would think, or maybe I'm just naive, but you would think that at kind of the upper level, you would be more insulated from the economic impacts of things like the pandemic. You're mostly right. From an economic standpoint, the money is certainly more guaranteed. There's a lot of variables, though. For example, I um, did some contract work with Boeing during my graduate work here. And between the 738 MAX is crashing and then um, the pandemic <laughs> closing the planes, Boeing's taken this one-two punch in the gut. And I think they're, they've just finished up their second year of uh, hiring freezes. I'm not sure they've actually hired new people. I mean, if, the, if you are the best of the best of the best, they'll always find room for you. But I don't think they've done real routine hires for a while. And so because of that, 
since less people, since those industries are hiring less, then the more guaranteed positions with government funding, such as national labs, they get a stiffer competition than they would normally be used to. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, one interview I had with a national lab, um, they've changed the rules um, just in case they can't get funding for whatever reason. And so they're a lot more cautious in hiring, I found, unless they already have money put in the bank, so to speak. They're a little less aggressive in their hires. Well, speaking of how world events might impact our economic fortunes, let's talk about one that might impact mine in Oracle v. Google. Uh, do you want to get us started off with a brief explanation? Sure. It's going to be a short explanation. I, I actually have lots of questions. So so everyone, I think, is aware of Google, um, at least the search engine. Um, Oracle is was actually an older company than I realized they were founded in 1971, I believe, if I remember that right. Um, and they're just... Um, they're they're mostly a data processing company, and uh, they bought the. Their big thing is that they bought Java programming, and used it to incorporate um, a lot of software in the '90s and 2000s, and then Google. That, correct me if I'm wrong here. Google then um, uh, started building Android, and they used Java in large parts of their Android construction, and so. Oracle is suing Google for copyright infringement of the code, and they're seeking like they're seeking billions and billions of dollars um, for this infringement. And it comes down to this, you know, real ethereal question. Hopefully, you can make it less ethereal. Is where does the copyright? Uh, how much protection does copyright give coding? If if Oracle truly does own this code and has full control over it then Google is in breach of that copyright and does owe Oracle money, or is programming more fair use, in which case everyone can kind of use any code more freely and there's less protections. And I think there are arguments for and against both of those things. But if you could, exp did, I, did I capture that right? Yeah, I think so. I can probably narrow down the question a little more specifically, but what I probably can't do super well is describe kind of the legal issues at play, uh, just not being, because they're not constitutional issues, so it's not as easy to find smart people <laughs> who, uh, who know them. And kind of one of the things I found as I was trying to understand the legal issues is that the cross-section between like engineers and legal scholars is actually quite low. Uh, but kind of the more fundamental, it, it is disturbing. And I will tell you, just listening to parts of that oral argument, it was, it was alarming. Uh, but kind of, I can narrow down the question at issue a little further by saying it's not just about computer code generally. It's kind of about functional structural code, right? So they they talk, much of the public discussion is focused on APIs, though from my reading in this case, it's really about Google re-implementing certain Java libraries. So you can think of this as, you know, if you're a programmer or a developer of any kind, you might have several packages uh, that are part of the programming language you use, right? And so for a super simple example, maybe there's, you know, a um, find the remainder package, right? Where it finds the remainder between two numbers. Now that's a really simple example that doesn't do Oracle's case justice, but for the sake of description, what Google essentially did was take a bunch of Java packages 
and re-implement them, meaning they rewrote the code themselves so that it would do the same thing that these Java packages would do when developers were using them in other programs. The idea was that they wanted to make it really easy for developers or programs which had been written in Java to be implemented on the uh, Android operating system. Uh, so the idea is they just kind of rewrote themselves packages so it behaved the same on the Android operating system. And Oracle's point was even that kind of, and I don't know what the right word is from an engineering perspective to get that kind of maps onto the legal question. There's not like a good term. I'll either misstate the legal or engineering question, but the kind of structural piece, right? The piece that is kind of more declarative or descriptive of behavior uh, that's the piece um, that's kind of at issue here. And I will say, I do think this has, having read a little bit more about the legal issues to the extent that, you know, the there's been legal journalism out there for people like me who are uninformed in kind of the deep precedence of the doctrine of fair use. I do think this has pretty high implications for APIs because it's much the same issue, right? An API is just one program reaching out to another uh, in some declarative fashion with some kind of predefined structure, um, meaning you send me a JSON uh, object, which is just kind of a, a way with symbols to organize around the data you're trying to send. And in return, I'll send you this, right? It's actually quite common in the industry to rewrite some, uh, rewrite yourself something that serves the same APIs and the reason you might do that is for cross-compatibility. If you have a competitor, you might yourself rewrite an API that functionally works the same way to make it easier for um, people to switch from your competitor. Interestingly, Ars Technica noted that Oracle has actually done this very same thing uh, with S3. Um, S3 is very common, what we call blob storage, meaning it just stores files um, and it's super durable. You almost never lose objects and super reliable. And it's a it's a product of Amazon Web Services that is everywhere in the industry. And Oracle, to try and make its cloud platform more competitive, re-implemented the S3 API. So if you had already written a tool that used S3, you could just make a couple changes and that same program would work with Oracle's equivalent blob storage. So it's a really common industry practice. Um, thinking about kind of the implications of the case, I, it, I, I don't know what the justices should do because I don't pretend to be, um, I don't pretend to be an attorney or really understand the complex legal issues, but I will say if the justices rule in favor of Oracle, it's something Congress needs to correct immediately in copyright law, because one of the biggest problems we're already facing in the technology industry and really in the American economy is kind of the damage of network effects, right? Meaning once you're big enough, it's just too hard to leave you, right? I mean, for a consumer example of this, think of Twitter or Facebook, right? Everyone's on there, so it's hard to leave. And granting Oracle's motion in this case vastly overpowers country, uh, companies like Oracle who are respectfully to everyone who works at Oracle. There's a lot of really cool things happening at companies like Oracle and IBM uh, past their prime. Uh, and kind of really put those network effects we've already been experiencing to a problematic amount on steroids.
That's interesting. I'll put a I'll put a straw man up there for you. Uh, what does I mean? How is this different from other patents? You 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 generally want patents, right? In order to in order to fuel innovation. Yeah. So this is not patented. This is copyrighted. Um, and again, the laws about how code and intellectual property work are a little beyond me. But in the case of a patent, you're you're protecting a specific idea. In the case of copyright, you're protecting the work, right? So in this case, what's at issue is copyright law and not a patent, uh, which makes it more difficult, right? It, it would be a different question and a different legal set if Oracle had gone and patented a way of doing things. Sorry, that's sort of the interesting thing about code, isn't it? Is, you know, it technically has words. And so that's why people would consider it copyrightable. And copyrights last for decades and decades, right? Where pat most patents expire after a while. Yes, it does seem forever. I think it's like a hundred years or something ridiculous. And so you'd think, you know, code isn't really, when I think of copyright, I think of, you know, fiction novels or something. And so I, I sort of, I, I would consider personally code to be more functional and would be better protected. Well, should be protected under a patent and less under copyright. So, but that's, that's difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I don't know about that, right? Because to try and trademark every piece of code you write, even little small functions mm -hmm. uh, in the era of microservices, that would keep legal departments at SaaS companies busy for a really, really long time. <laughs> um, one thing I do worry about, though, with this decision, I have to say, you know, you know me, Dallin, we have a lot of political discussions behind the scenes. Um I am very much anti the burn it down kind of impulse of our generation, meaning I think I think too many people are too quick to say um, that the system is fundamentally flawed. But I have to tell you, listening to the justices debate this question and kind of the really simplistic terms in which they were discussing this was not just discouraging, it was downright alarming, right? Meaning... I know super conservative jurists would argue, well, look, uh, you just have to interpret the law and it doesn't really matter. But I think it does matter to understand the context. I think it was it was either the National Security Law podcast or uh, ra uh, what is the other one? Um, uh, or strict scrutiny that said all justices are consequentialists if the consequences are high enough. And you kind of saw that last term with their decision in the faithless electors case which is that you kind of basically heard the justices say in fact i think kavanaugh even said you know no justice is really looking to like totally upturn the system of elections in america right whatever we might think of kind of the text of the constitution now i understand that's not the formal case they end up making but the fact that the consequences figure in at least somewhat uh, look, I'm not arguing that the whole American system is fundamentally flawed or that, you know, people AOC's age or that congressman from Asheville that was just uh, elected. I'm not saying people like that need to flood government, but it was not just it wasn't just the normal. You can't expect the justices to be super into the weeds or details 
of what you're doing. It was the extent to which the questions were so simplistic that if there ever was a technical issue with massive consequences, the justices would not, I felt like coming out of that, be able to understand or appreciate the consequences of a decision. I mean, the the discussion was so rudimentary, it was a little alarming. That's interesting. Don't justices hire technical experts, though? Don't they have technical clerks, or am I just inventing that? I think you are inventing that. Um, okay. It could be that they hire people, and I'm just not familiar with it, but their clerks are just normally like law school students that have been come out and hired. Uh, but even then, right, even if you hire technical people, I don't know if it if it's fair to allow to expect a justice to make total sense of everything right just like other scientific questions there's always going to be a couple scientist outliers and i've always wondered if you're in that position how do you distinguish the outliers from kind of the bulk consensus right meaning there Mm -hmm. are a few scientists who are um who are you know legitimate scientists operating in good faith who might dispute climate change or have very different ideas about what public health experts should do in the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's not where the bulk of experts are. And I don't know how, how you would expect a justice to necessarily recognize what the, the broad consensus of an industry was. I don't know. Do you think there's a broad consensus one way or the other? Oh, yeah. I think there's a broad consensus that deciding in the favor of Oracle would be really bad for the technology industry. Um, not and bad for the like I, I'm say, I'm trying to find a different way to phrase it so it doesn't just sound like I'm worried about my job bad for the technology <laughs> industry and and like bad for technology going forward right in other words the consequence of, of a decision favoring Oracle without Congress stepping in to amend copyright law um, from a, a what where you'll see that as a consumer is in five years it'll be a lot harder to buy software products that work with one another right it'll be a lot easier for companies to lock you in for 30 years or to say have someone like i don't know especially business software maybe something like quickbooks i don't know some accounting software you'll find one firm dominates the field because no one can write software that's cross compatible uh, so it, it's those kind of things you'll find, you know, it'll be easier for one player to dominate because network effects will be so much stronger and it will be really hard for competitors to rise up that are cross compatible with their peers and to be able to compete because you're essentially asking, you know, just like a social network, you'd be asking someone to to join a network where nobody was. Uh, so it's that kind of thing that I worry about. And I think there is, I think I can say with a really high degree of confidence, there's very broad consensus that that's the case. But again, I don't know that like that necessarily means the justices have to rule that way. I just, I'm, I'm not nearly familiar enough with copyright or fair use law. But like, look, even in the basic research I did, fair use, it seems like a pretty kind of unspecific standards that applied here and so i guess part of my concern here was if the standards are pretty unspecific or subjective i don't know that you could expect the justices on the court liberal or conservative you know justices figures i really respect i respect the heck out of chief justice john roberts uh i've always respected sonia sotomayor 
um, just kind of as people. So these are people who I think very highly of and who are infinitesimally smarter than me, but the extent to which they did not understand anything about what they were really asking about was a little alarming to me. And I think you see the same kind of thing in congressional hearings and stuff like that, where, you know, there might be people who manipulate individual clips to make senators look bad, but even watching broad, um, broad swaths of the hearing, it doesn't get much better. It's it's pretty darn scary. I think Uh, at some point we're going to have to fix that. That's hard because all this stuff, you know, all this stuff is new. And unless you're willing to sort of sit down and study it, it is a little it is a little difficult to grasp uh, the complexities of coding. We we forget even even if I went and became a Python coder, I wouldn't like I wouldn't open up an operating system necessarily and try to try to change it. And so. And and that's someone who's actually sort of interested in engineering. If I if I went into you know if I focused on law or stuff, all all software questions would sort of feel the same to me. And that's actually super interesting. And not to take us too off topic, but that is something that has super surprised me about your job is how much like coding you end up doing for what you do. You know, it, it goes. It goes all over the place. There's some people that don't know how to code at all. And there's other people that have built their own workstation and they they don't leave their desk and they are on Visual Studio solving differential equations with code all day long. So, you know, a lot of a lot of materials is sort of choose your own adventure. I do like to see the physical product at the end. And so I sort of go back and forth where I try to code something and then I'm like, no, I need to actually touch something. And then the machine breaks and I'm like, "Uh, maybe coding's not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's not hard. And I, I feel like I try to convince people of that all the time in part because our industry is just so desperate for more people. Um, I know it wasn't on our formal topic today. Can we discuss one other thing that has been driving me crazy? And can I start it with a totally personal anecdote? Okay. The conversation about the election and how election counting work has been like deeply alarming to me. But first, I have one hilarious story, or maybe it's only funny (laughs) in my mind. Um, I used to not be that political. Like, well, I've always been political, but never like involved, right? Like I'd read a lot of news, but I'd never go do stuff. But this election, I actually did a bunch of stuff. So I basically took the five days before election day off, or I think three days because there was a weekend. And I just knocked on doors. I made phone calls for a local candidate and i did this for basically like five solid days in addition to having done stuff for weekends prior for like two months i've consumed every scrap of news that's basically all i've done when i was not working for my job Uh, and i had to like create rules for myself about working and basically when i wasn't working i was only listening to political news and i did this for three months um because of the COVID 19 pandemic there was a shortage of election workers. So I went in and it was such a long day. I had been knocking on doors and making phone calls for three days. And then the day I I showed up like at 540 in the morning and the day finally ended at 830 or 930. And so on election night, after months 
of consuming every piece of news I possibly could on election night. I like went to bed before I knew anything. <laughs> I was just like, nope, can't do it. We're done. And I'll just find out tomorrow morning. No, it feels like West Wing when on voting day, the candidates are just sleeping during the day because they're so exhausted. They don't even care anymore. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, <laughs> mid mid 2018, Hillary Clinton came out with her like, I wasn't that bad of a candidate defense. It was a book she wrote called like, What Happened? Oh, What Happened? And oh, yeah. She, yes. And I read and I remember her describing going to sleep on election night uh, and then waking up to find they had lost a key state. And I don't remember what state it was, but I because it was a couple years ago that I read it. But I remember thinking, how on earth could you sleep? Wouldn't you be so <laughs> amped up? And I like, I, I'm never going to run for anything, don't get me wrong, but I like totally get that now. Uh, my small, <laughs> tiny little piece of that. Um, but one of the... But what, there are kind of two things coming out of the election that I feel like have been undercovered in news media. The first is the the undercoverage of the role Apple News has played and how good of a job they've done. So one of the things I've noticed is every person I know who has an iPhone has been opening that news app and checking it. Because what Apple did was they brought in the data from the Associated Press and created a little applet in the page where you could go and click around and look at states and see what states have been called. But one of the things that impressed me, and I, I happen to have known this about Apple before, is that their use of algorithms is more limited on their like main today pages, right? So that you, you have a feed that will show you stories, but on the like main today pages, they're curated by actual journalists. And one of the things I thought about was in that moment is kind of I was watching from Tuesday to Saturday when all the networks called the presidential race was how grateful I was for that approach as opposed to the approach of a Facebook or a Twitter. Because I was struck looking around and talking about the election by how many people were using that news app and refreshing the page on the Apple News app. I felt like it was undercovered how many people were checking it and how Apple was not allowing an algorithm to spew conspiracy theories on that platform, right? Just because someone tended to have crazier views. They were all reasonable articles. I mean, I watched other people read them and I never saw anything crazy come up. Oh, that's interesting. I deleted the news app on my phone. Um, I don't know why. Mostly because I'm not subscribed to the New York Times or the Washington Post, but um, or even the Wall Street Journal. I just get the free stuff. But no, Google. So I use Google News, and they are very cookie heavy. And if I like click on something, or if I type in something like a little, you know, not mainstream, I can I can get some conspiracy theories in my newsfeed pretty quickly, and. And, you know, Facebook's always sort of a dumpster fire when it comes to anything news. <laughs> so I, I, I actually had no idea about that Apple thing. Yeah, and that was, and maybe I just, look, it, this is a purely anecdotal story. I don't have any data or evidence, which is risky always, but just anecdotally watching, I I watched some, I talked to some people who had some pretty, conspiratorial beliefs that they thought were mainstream about the election and i watched them check that thing constantly on their phone 
And I was just grateful that that the thing they were checking to get the results was not another source of propaganda or misinformation. <laughs> propaganda is not the right word, but misinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to talk about one other thing real quickly that I felt like was kind of alarming, which is the extent to which people see on news sites 101% reporting or something like that and think that it's evidence of fraud. Like I know there are so many conspiracy theories going around right now that um, that it's hard to swat them all down. But people need to understand those percentages are not percentages of voters. They're not saying 102% of registered voters voted. They're saying that those are estimates of how many ballots were remaining to count, right? Depending on the news organization, some will do precincts and stuff like that, right? But depending on what they're using for that small little percentage in the quarter, that's sometimes how you can get those 101% because they mm -hmm. estimated the amount of remaining ballots wrong and they, they're trying to be transparent so that they don't auto adjust. Um, sites that, pre that report precincts and not remaining votes obviously don't have that problem, but that percentage is not... Is is not. I want to say this one more. Is not total number of votes. America would be at a high watermark if seventy five percent of registered voters voted. Right, that would be crazy high for the country. So those are not percent of registered voters. Those are either percent of ballots, in which case sometimes you can see weird things happen if the estimates were off. Um, just like, you know, the Saturday, I think it was uh, Pennsylvania ended up being called for Biden was in part because there was a, a realization that there were not as many ballots left to count as they thought there were. Um, but the other uh, and in the case of precincts, you don't have that problem, but it is not registered voters. So just wanted to throw that out there. Now, the conspiracy theories. I, I don't know. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode with, you know, Facebook sort of fomenting all of this nonsense. But it seems to be at a much higher intensity this time around. And I don't know if that's, well, a lot of things have changed in the past four years, I suppose, with the election cycles. <laughs> but um, it, it is it, it is sort of interesting to watch all of the conspiracy theories come out. It is, right? Like the extent to which people are ready to believe things are being stolen, right? And I have to say, I've been thinking about a lot about our Russian disinformation um, episode, because one of the things we didn't talk about, and I don't know that we could, is like domestic information. I remember there was a great line in the, uh, in the episode when Finn was talking and he said, you know, regardless of what you think, pro or anti-Trump, because that was the specific issue we were trying, talking about at that moment was Russian support of Trump. Uh, it should be Americans doing this, right? And I think he's right about that. But one of the things we didn't discuss is what do you do with domestic disinformation, right? What do you do with, you know, the Alex Joneses of the world? Um, and I, I, it's a difficult question to answer. How do you properly handle that? And I think we're kind of living through that to some extent right now, right? Which is that there are so many conspiracy theories going on about the election that um, it's a little alarming, right? And I'm, that's the other thing. As a software engineer, I'm not asking people to trust software. I'm asking people to trust a pretty robust system of humans. I'm very anti-voting with no paper ballot backup, Right. For me, that is a really big no, no. Um, but in virtually all states, that's not the case. Uh, people are sitting there like um, there are 
recounts and uh, in a lot of states uh, sample canvases, right, to go double check the machines. I mean, it's really hard. It's very difficult to to be nefarious in a election at the presidential level and get away from get away with it. Right, because you need at least thirty thousand ballots. You're not saying, oh. Let's 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 pay off an elector somewhere to not vote, right? It's you're counting. You have to be tens of thousands of votes in the wrong direction, and so it it would require large scale fraud. But you know, I just this just popped in my head. You know, you have to remind me. You probably actually read it back during the Bush and. Uh, Sorry, not the Bush, the McCain and Obama days when people were trying to uh, vote on machines and they would push the Obama button and the McCain would get selected or vice versa. But other than that, you know, there is no fraud, right? There's been no actual cases of fraud more than 10 votes, right? Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the point I make to people all the time is... You know, they'll say, how do you know there isn't fraud? And, uh, you know, they'll say, you know, look, it's plausible that people passed away, blah, blah. And we say, like, fine, I can grant you that. But to do it on a scale that swings elections, even small local elections, without getting caught is so astoundingly difficult. Right. Look at what happened in North Carolina's, uh, I think it was ninth congressional district where I am just this past year. Right. It was a pretty straightforward ballot harvesting operation. And it wasn't. I think a lot of people looked at that and said, how do we know this haven't, doesn't happen more often? To which my response is, because it was obvious, right? The, uh, the Board of Elections uh, puts out data of how many ballots they get every day, and there were huge ballot drops on certain days. Uh, it was really, really easy to tell. For, and then based on certain neighborhoods, like all of a sudden you'd have a bajillion ballots, you know, dropped off or something. Um uh, in is from a certain neighborhood, stuff like that. Like it's really, really difficult to do that kind of thing on a scale without being noticed. Um, and that's kind of always my, my kind of point with people is look, the nature of elections is such that I can't prove to you that someone didn't walk into their polling place, claim to be their neighbor and cast a wrongful ballot. Right. What I can tell you with a pretty high degree of certainty is that running an operation on the scale you would knew you would need to do that for to swing an election without getting noticed is virtually impossible. Um, I mean, it's just so difficult. Well, that's reassuring. Yes. And yeah, now I will say, uh, don't rely on computers alone. I'm fine with computers doing the initial tab- tabulating, but citizens, wherever you are, insist to your local board of elections that they have a paper backup using whatever method they do <laughs> to count your ballots. Uh, anyway, it has been, you know, we uh, we skipped quite a while, and fortunately, at least, we didn't skip a cycle where there was a lot of news, so that's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else we want to talk about before we wrap this one up? No, that's probably enough. You have just listened to the Engineer's Backyard Barbecue, sponsored by the Sarah Obando Web Studio. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Benjamin. I'm your host. I was joined today by Dallin. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye.